you hear me? Oh, young ladies told me the recording's in progress. Thank you. Better tick, got it. Great, over to me, is it? Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Really good to be virtually with you this evening. Sorry, Carol can't be here, but she sends her smile. Um, unfortunate that um, a number of folk in the dental practice that she works in have gone down with COVID and she managed to pick it up too. So fortunately, because she's double vaccinated, not been terribly serious, but just like a kind of flu. Anyway, she's very stoical and still cooked me a roast dinner today. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good. Hopefully everything worked this morning and um, that you got the message okay for this morning. Great, thank you very much. I'm going to read tonight from Galatians 3. Understand that you're working through this letter week by week and you've reached chapter 3 and verse 19. And I've been given the section that ends at verse 7 of chapter 4. And so I'm going to read those verses before I say anything about them. So here we go. Galatians 3 and verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Next little section's headed up, children of God. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. On into chapter four. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to, to guardians and, and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. May God bless that 
little reading from his word. I was visiting one of our older ladies uh, just a week or so ago. She lives in a little village called East Coca, just by the side of Yeovil. And we were sort of reminiscing, and there were quite a few people that we knew uh, because her husband used to come and preach at the church I grew up in, in Weymouth. And she was talking about the Sunday school treats that we had. Uh, we would go to East Coca, the village she lived in, and she would get involved in helping prepare the tea. And that reminded me that one of the memories I have of Sunday school outings uh, was the sore palms that were the usual consequence of the inevitable tug of war that we used to have at Sunday school outings. And at some point in the afternoon, probably the old rope was bound to make an appearance and there would be this huge scramble amongst the boys to get as near to the front of the line as possible. Usually it was the women against the men, which never seemed really very fair to me, as there were always more women than men, and, and they usually won. But no one really minded very much, because it was all good fun at the end of the day. Why tell you that? Well, as Paul writes to these Christians, the Galatians, he realises that he's caught up in a kind of virtual tug of war, and there's nothing remotely fun about it. At one end of the rope were a party called the Judaizers, a group of people who said that a Gentile or non-Jew had to first become a Jew before they could become a true Christian. Now for male converts in particular, that meant undergoing three different rituals, Jewish rituals, circumcision, baptism, and the offering of a sacrifice. At the other end of this rope was Paul, a lone figure who said that conversion to Christianity had nothing whatever to do with whether you were a Jew or not. It was simply a matter of what God did by grace on account of a person's faith in Jesus. And in the middle of the rope, a bit like the knotted handkerchief that each team tries to pull over to their side with the Galatians. A group of non-Jewish believers who'd become Christians after Paul and perhaps others had brought the gospel to them. Now, the current state of play was that the Judaizers seem to have all but dragged the Galatians over onto their ground. In other words, these new Christians were, were gradually being hauled over to this decidedly dodgy territory of Judaistic legalism. And that's the reason Paul told his secretary to take a letter because he was determined that he was going to pull his, his dear children back into the freedom of grace's ground. In the first part of chapter three of this letter, you can almost see the rope beginning to move slowly in Paul's direction as the sheer weight of his defence and the force and authority of his reasoning begins to tell. But he's not finished yet. He's keen to keep the momentum going until such time as the opposition has no, left, uh, no leg left to stand on and they just kind of collapse in a heap. So in chapter four, he adds another three heavyweights to his team in the shape of a legal analogy, a personal appeal and a biblical allegory. And we're going to look at the first of those, this legal analogy, a little bit later. But first, we need to deal with the rest of the verses in chapter three and take some time to think about what one Greek scholar, a chap called William Barclay, calls one of the most difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. So thanks for giving me this, <laughs> this passage to talk about. Nine, verses 19 to 29 of chapter three. Uh, there's some very difficult concepts in here. 
And uh, I'm going to begin, actually, with the most puzzling bit in verses 19 to 22. And for obvious reasons, if anyone's taking notes, uh, I've got four major headings. And the first one is this, a cryptic answer, a cryptic answer. Because having said in verse 10 that all who rely on the works of the Lord are under a curse, the works of the law are under a curse, Paul poses an obvious rhetorical question in verse 19 when he says, why then? Was the law given at all? To put it another way, if the law can't save us, what on earth was the point of enacting it in the first place? Well, good question. To which Paul gives a somewhat cryptic answer. He says it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. One of my boys was recently sent a letter about a traffic offence and was told that he had a fine to pay. And they sent a few photographs with this letter, which showed that his car was partway across a bridge and it was on the wrong side of the road. But when you compared the three, the sequence of the three photos, it's crystal clear that his car was moving because it was in three different positions, but the other car which was also on the wrong side of the road for him, was not moving. Explanation, my son had clearly moved out to pass a car that was parked on his side of the road. So why was he being fined? He had no idea, because there was no explanation. As far as he was concerned, he committed no crime at all. And he's still in dispute with that local council. What Paul was saying, was that by giving us the law, God was making what he considers to be sinful absolutely clear. Preacher and author John MacArthur puts it like this. When a man looks at the law, he sees that his living is more than simply wrong. It's sin, an offence against a holy God before whom no sinful person can stand. So the law was given so we could understand what God considers to be sinful. So who is the seed then? Or what, who or what is the seed that he mentions in this verse? Well, for the answer to that part of the conundrum, we need to go right back into the Old Testament to Genesis 22, where we find that great hero of faith, Abraham, being willing to sacrifice his one and only son on Mount Moriah. After which God makes him this promise. This covenant, which is a very special kind of promise. God says to Abram, I'm going to surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through your offspring, or as the authorised version puts it, seed, and it's a singular word, seed, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So who was that singular seed of Abraham through whom people of every tribe and nation would ultimately be blessed and no prizes for the answer? Because, of course, it's Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, we no longer need the law to tell us what's sinful. Because Christ himself is God's eternal word. Christ himself is God's standard of righteousness. Christ himself sums up everything that was in the law. So when we look at Jesus, as Peter did, you remember on the beach one morning, 
we realise just how sinful we are. Peter, you remember, said, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Next couple of sentences. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, says Paul. But God is one. Now, what's all that about? Very good question. Well, it seems that in some way or another, angels were involved in giving Moses the law, the Ten Commandments and, and everything else that God said to him on the mountain. This is also referred to by Stephen in his defence before the Sanhedrin, shortly before he was executed in Acts 7.53. It's referred to again by the writer of Hebrews in the second verse of chapter 2. This idea of the angels being involved in the giving of the law, which all adds up to the fact that Israel received the law not direct from God, but via an intermediary, as opposed to the coming of grace, which came directly through Jesus, who was God in flesh. Alternatively, when God made his promise to Abram on Mount Moriah, there was no mediator involved. And it's that covenant with Abram that the likes of me and you ultimately benefit from because God said through your seed singular Jesus through your seed people of all nations will be blessed coincidentally one of my books on Galatians came to me without an intermediary the rest of my books on this letter and I've got seven or eight of them came from Christian bookshops or from Amazon but this particular one came to me direct from the author I did nothing to deserve it. I paid nothing for it. Just says in the front, to Chris and Carol, best wishes in the Lord Jesus, Steve. And that was Steve Brady who wrote the book and he was teaching at the Bible teaching conference in Torquay that I was helping to lead. And he very kindly gave me that book. It didn't come through an intermediary or mediator. It came direct from the author. And the gift of God's grace doesn't come through an intermediary. It comes directly through God himself, through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. So grace comes directly from God. Sin held sway until Jesus came. But as Graham Kendrick once put it, over sin, he has conquered. Over death, victorious. Alleluia. He has triumphed. Jesus reigns over all. So that's verses 19 to 22. Now on to 23 to 25, and I'll need to speed up just a little bit. Uh, I'm calling this little section an explanatory edition. An explanatory edition. Here's another intriguing statement. Before the coming of this faith, says Paul, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. You see, the law was not just like a legal code that kind of listed every sin, every transgression, everything that God considered to be evil. It was also a bit like a jailer that held that code's offenders captive. So anyone who broke the law was effectively held captive by the law. And one of the relatively few things that, that we all have in common, in fact, every person on earth has in common, is that we 
have all broken God's law in one way or another and are therefore are all held captive until such time as a stronger power releases us from the law's bondage. But having said that, Paul offers us this explanatory addition. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. What do you mean by that? Well, if you'd grown up in Paul's time in, in a well-to-do Greek home, you would probably have had what was called a paedagogos, a bit of a mouthful, a paedagogos, to keep an eye on you. Now, a paedagogos was a particularly trusted servant of the household who would escort you as a child to school and deliver you safely to the teacher. And not only that, but the paedagogos would also be responsible ultimately for your conduct and would have had the authority to, to exercise discipline. In fact, it's been said that some paedagogoses or paedagogi, whatever the plural is, some of them were very harsh, even to the point of cruelty. Now, the NIV translates that word as guardian, another as schoolmaster, another as tutor. And, and in a sense, a paedagogos was a little bit of both. But what Paul was saying is that the law acted both as a guard and a moral supervisor until Jesus came. But that those who trust Jesus, who have committed their lives to Christ and are justified by faith, have no more need of such a potentially merciless guardian. For instead, Christ watches over us. He's our guardian. He's our moral supervisor through the work of his spirit within us. I love that verse, um, this wonderful song, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Hallelujah. Swiftly on then to verses 26 to 29 of chapter 3, and I'm calling this a confident affirmation. A confident affirmation. Very occasionally, I get asked to take a, a, a funeral for somebody that I didn't know at all. Doesn't happen very often. Most of the funerals that I take are for people within the church that I look after, help to look after. But sometimes I have to take funeral services for people that I suspect really probably never trusted Christ. I can't be sure, but my gut feeling is from what I learned from the family, they've never had that personal relationship with Jesus. And just a few months ago, my younger son asked me this question. He says, what do you say, Dad, when you're not really sure if the person was a Christian or not? He was talking about the context of funerals. What do you say if you're not really sure if the person was a believer? And I had to tell him. And to be honest and say, well, I, I try and find a form of words that, whilst not destroying all sense of hope, neither offers false hope. In other words, I, I try and leave room for both possibilities, because at the end of the day, thank goodness, it's not for me to make that final call. It's for God to do that. But how very different 
are those funerals when on the authority of God's word and promises I can say about a person with absolute confidence our dear brother our dear sister is now at home with the Lord which is better by far now similarly in verses 26 and 27 Paul is able to say confidently of his readers you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who are baptised into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, what he was saying to them is there's nothing more to be done. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to go through these rituals because there's not a single thing you can do to further improve your position before God. You're already part of God's forever family, to use one of Steve Brady's expressions. They'd been baptised into Christ. They had been clothed with Christ, whether they were Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And so together with every other believing individual uh, this world has ever seen, they fully and truly belonged to Christ. How much clearer could Paul possibly have made it? You are, he says, you are Abram's seed. Yes, really. You people who were not born as Jews are actually the spiritual offspring of the man himself, the father of faith, the person that every Jew looks up to. You're to be counted amongst his spiritual children, not because you observe the law, but because you're people of faith. I love what John Stott had to say about this, that masterful teacher of God's word said this no longer do we feel ourselves to be waifs and strays without any significance in history or bits of useless flotsam drifting on the tide of time instead we find our place in the unfolding purposes of God we are the spiritual seed of Abraham who lived and died 4,000 years ago for in Christ we've become heirs of the promise which God made to him Wonderful stuff. So, dear friends, shame on those believers who practice forms of racism. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus, having bowed the knee to him. Shame on those believers who exploit their employees for personal gain, because there should be no virtual slaves within the body of Christ. Not to mention the disgrace that should rest on any follower of Jesus who treats women unfairly. Because our earliest forebears, including Jesus himself, did much to improve the status of women at a time when they were little more than the property of men. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Our faith unites us. Our faith brings us down to the same level, the level of the foot of Jesus' cross. Finally, then into chapter four. And here's where we find Paul resorting to what I'm calling a legal analogy to further drive home his argument. It's a paragraph in which he uses a number of different legal terms that have to do with the status and the rights of children and slaves and adopted sons. So please bear with me just for a minute or two as I try and explain Paul's train of thought to you. Basically what he's doing is he's drawing a contrast between the restricted freedom and privileges of a child heir, someone who has not yet come of age, 
who he says is, is virtually no different from a slave. Drawing a distinction between a child heir and an adult son by adoption, who is free to fully enjoy his inheritance. And Paul's analogy runs something like this. Under Roman law, a young boy could be the legal owner of a huge estate. But if he was still a child, a minor, he wasn't allowed to run that estate. He wasn't allowed to enjoy that estate and benefit from it. He might have been the lord of the manor, but to all intents and purposes, he was actually no better off than a slave because he was under the supervision, under the thumb of guardians and trustees. And he had no real freedom. He was not in control of his life, said one writer. Everything was done and directed for him. So he owns it all. But there's nothing much he can do with it. His hands are tied. Just like us, says Paul, before Jesus came. We were children of Abraham. We were heirs of the promise God made to him. But we couldn't enjoy our inheritance because we were still under the law. Just as infant heirs are under the control and jurisdiction of their guardians, so we are under the guardianship of the law. In other words, in a sense, we're, we're just, as, just like slaves. Notice the word that Paul uses to describe the law. In verse 3, he says, we are in slavery under the basic principles of the world. That phrase literally translated means the ABCs, the nursery school stuff the rudimentary knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying, if you know, if you now go back to embracing the law, as those Judaizers are suggesting, you'd not be making progress. On the contrary, you'd be returning to a form of spiritual infancy and immaturity. Warren Wiersbe, who's written books on every book of the New Testament, um, says in his book on Galatians, for some 15 centuries, Israel had been in kindergarten and day school, learning their spiritual ABC so that they would be ready when Christ would come. And then they'd get the full revelation for Christ is the Alpha and Omega, encompassing all the alphabet of God's revelation to man. He is God's last word. So. What did Jesus come to do? Verse five, Jesus came to redeem those under the law that they might receive the full rights of sons. He came to, to free us from the restrictions of living under the law, trying our hardest to keep it in every little detail. He came to turn slavery to the law into sonship. His birth, his life, his death and resurrection opened up the way for God to send the spirit into our hearts. The spirit who enables us to call out Abba, Father, something that an, a Jew in the Old Testament would never have dreamed of. Now, this little phrase that we might receive the full right of sons is a reference to adoption. And in the, in the New Testament, adoption means to place someone as an adult son. This particular word that Paul used means to place as an adult son. This is our standing in Christ. We're not like little children anymore. We're not subject to the law anymore. We're not subject to trustees and guardians anymore. 
we're free. We're like adult sons who as heirs can enjoy their inheritance. We're no longer slaves, but sons and heirs. And that's the legal analogy. And having made that analogy, what Paul wants to know is, why on earth are you Galatians lapsing into legalism? Why should you as Gentile believers, followers of Jesus, want to enslave yourself again to this suffocating legal system that can do nothing to improve your standing with God? A legal analogy. Showing these people that they're in danger of giving up their status as adult sons for the far weaker, less privileged position of an infant heir. And he's pointing out that by turning back to the law again, they were effectively saying goodbye to their freedom and putting themselves once more in the power of the hardest of taskmasters. Now, I could leave it there because that in, in terms of the passage that we've looked at and the time that we've got available, I feel I've kind of explained that, but I wanna finish on, on a more positive note and return to the closing verses of chapter three. And I've no further comment to add, but I just want to remind you of where you are today on account of God's mercy and grace. And this time I'm reading from a version of the Bible I seldom use. It's, it's called The Message. It's, it's the translation or paraphrase of one man, uh, obviously a very gifted scholar, but um, I don't often use The Message. But I'd like to use it now um, just to, to read this passage with a freshness so that you can rejoice in your inheritance as a child of God. Here are these verses from the message. But now you've arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you're in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involves dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe. Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. For in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew or slave and free or male and female. Among us, all are equal. We're all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And since you are Christ's family, then you are Abram's famous descendant and heirs according to the covenant promises. In other words, dear friends, we're not under law, we're under his grace. We're not achievers, we're receivers. So let's live like it. Let's be thankful and let's rejoice. Amen. <laughs>